Well, he's doing it. Fake Catholic Super in Chief Joe Biden is uh, canceling a bunch of student loans. Does he even have the power to do that? And why is he doing it now? Lots of questions about this. And what about usury? Want to get into all of that with our good friend Jeff Kassman, who joins RTF for the, I don't know, third or fourth time. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, better than I deserve. How are you? <laughs> I love that answer. I love that answer. Um, this is such a weird one, man, because. There's a lot to unpack, and I know we can start off in a lot of places, but I think maybe the best place to start is why don't you give us kind of a we, – we've been in an ultra-low interest rate environment since the early 2000s. A lot of, a lot of legislation happened post-9-11 um, that, that relates to mortgages, that has changed the mortgage industry in general. I think a lot of people maybe would like to hear kind of just some back – story on that before we kind of get into the mechanics of what Biden is trying to do. What um, Can you fill us in? Yeah. So big picture, you know, the United States has been a largely consumer driven economy for decades. And although the Federal Reserve was initially established to manage inflation and protect consumers from inflation, what the Federal Reserve has really done uh, for the last 50 years since Nixon decoupled us from the gold standard is they have tried to manage both inflation and employment. And mm -hmm. so there's this constant back and forth balancing where the Federal Reserve is trying to kind of be the, the puppet master of the entire United States economy and not just the U.S., but there's this ripple effect throughout most of the world. And so interest rates become a, a political tool and no longer just an economic tool. And so what the Federal Reserve has done really since the, the Bush years, the W, is they've tried to kind of juice the economy constantly by keeping interest rates low. And what that does is that gives an incentive first to the banks because they borrow that money from the Federal Reserve at almost nothing. And then they lend that money out. And because interest rates are low, there's maximum opportunity for people to borrow with a good chance of being able to pay that money back, right? If you can borrow money at 2%, then you don't have to be able to show a, a, you know, a home run in your business or your personal life in order to be able to pay that back. Imagine if you were borrowing money at 10%, then the banks would really be aggressive. You'd really have to be able to show the ability to pay, but at 2%, 3%, 4%, mm. almost anybody can get a loan. And in fact, the banks are willing to take enormous risks that they would otherwise not take because they themselves are not paying very much 
for the money, right? They're paying half or one, or at one point we were almost looking at negative interest rates. So the story of the last uh, 20-ish years has been politicians telling the Fed to, to create this free money so there can be lent to banks who themselves will then lend that money out. And it's not just consumers borrowing money, right? It's enormous uh, Fortune 500 companies that will borrow money at these ridiculous rates. It's called free money, right? When the yeah. interest rate, well, you know all this stuff, but the folks that are listening, the interest rate is below the inflation rate, then it's it's technically free money. You're not even really paying interest on it. And, and so now enormous corporations will make decisions that they otherwise would not have done if they were having to use, quote, real money that came at a cost. And this this whole effect works through the economy down to even to the to the regular consumer who says, I'm going to buy a more expensive house than I otherwise would because the money's so cheap or I'm going to you know buy that hundred thousand dollar Chevy Suburban that I never would have bought before because now it's so cheap. So that's the background, uh, really, that's been driving the economy for the last twenty years. It's the it's the biggest issue, and it comes directly to play for these uh, these topics we're going to be talking about today. And there's a moral hazard component to it as well, not just with the banks that are lending, but as to your point, to people who are signing on the bottom line for for much larger loans than they otherwise would have. Well, because in in the United States, especially, maybe not so much in Europe, but we think in terms of monthly payment. We don't think in yeah. terms of principal. We don't think in terms of interest. We think in terms of what's what's my monthly uh, run rate. And yeah. um, the other, you know, the other thing is is that. You're absolutely right that the Federal Reserve created it and, and appropriated to itself a mandate that ha- it was never assigned. They are the puppet masters and in and, and more ways than one. And we don't, maybe won't go there on this particular stream, but people know what I'm referring to. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, is that the mandate for unemployment to managing unemployment down to a, you know the three percent target rate or whatever, the two and a half percent target rate is absolutely something that they invented themselves it's like a it's a, like a self-appropriation of power. It's probably as massive in its magnitude, in my opinion. Tell me if, I, if you think I'm crazy. As Marbury versus Madison, when the Supreme Court decided that they were the arbiter of what's constitutional. I think I think the the Federal Reserve self-appropriating the power of regulating employment in this country is is as tectonic as that. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with you. Um, you. You know, there are a couple of things that have happened in the history of the United States that are enormously significant. Of course, you have the uh, the war between the states, the Civil War, and then you've got uh, the 16th and 17th Amendments. And for purposes of people that are living today, you say, well, why do the 16th and 17th Amendments matter so much? The 16th Amendment gave the central government the power to tax income. And along with that power came the ability to borrow against that income, just like you and I might borrow based on our our income that we have, whether it's wages or business income or retirement income. We go to the bank, we say, here's how much our income is. And they say, "Okay, we'll loan you this money. So the federal government getting that power through the 16th Amendment allowed them to take on not just economic risks, but political risks that otherwise would never have been possible. Imagine World War One and World War Two never could have happened from our standpoint as Americans if they couldn't print money. 
right? right? If they couldn't just say, yeah, we'll do it no matter the cost. In fact, that was a big part of why the founders had opposed this kind of central banking, because they knew that a government constrained by real money couldn't go on these expensive endeavors. And of course, there's nothing more expensive than war in raw terms. I'm not even talking about metaphorical. And then, of course, the other issue with the direct election of United States senators meant there was no longer any sort of check on the House of Representatives. So our U.S. senators, they're just glorified House of Representative members, right? They're yeah. they're directly elected by the people. There's no buffer there. So they're just constantly looking at the, the winds to see where things are going because they want to get elected next time, as opposed to the way the founders had envisioned it, which was the, the state legislators looking at them as ambassadors to the federal government. All of that, of course, has gone away. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I think I think that's all kind of that's all pretty fair analysis in terms of uh, I think a lot of people are surprised at just how m- much of the debt market in the United States the government is actually underwriting. You know, it's uh, small, a lot of small business loans, a lot of agricultural loans, a lot of education loans, and a heck of a lot of mortgages all pass through the fingertips of the government. And I don't know, I don't know that I've seen any reliable estimates, Jeff. Maybe you have. I wrote a piece in LifeSite when uh, a few months back, when when Biden was threatening this action, you know, just talking about uh, how I, as far as I can tell, at least a third of all debt private debt in the United States really is underwritten by the, by the government. A lot of people maybe don't know that or are surprised by that. And so in, in, in some cases, at least on a theoretical level, and we'll get down to the mechanics and the specifics of, of particular student loans, but on a theoretical level, the government, because they are the, the underwriters of so much of the debt can in theory, take actions like canceling debt um, in, in, in some cases. I mean, what, I mean, yeah, it's, it's it's a really messy situation. So the the government wants debt because the debt allows for economic activity and people will do things that they otherwise would not be able to do if they didn't have the money. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways to look at why the government would want that. I, I'm going to take the least conspiratorial approach for kind of for the devil's advocate here and say, they want that money because they want us to be happy. If you have your house, if you have your car, if you've got your big screen TV, if you can take that vacation to Florida every now and then, presumably you're happier than you would be if you were all crammed into grandma's house, struggling to save up enough money to buy that house, which is always going to be elusive, by the way, because you're putting your money in a savings account and inflation is eating it away. So mm-hmm. I, I think that they're encouraging this debt at every level. And yes, a huge um, number of residential mortgages are backed by the Fed, either directly or indirectly. And uh, and then you've got the, the student loans, which is uh, a trillion and a half, something like that. And then you have the farm loans and you've got the small business loans, mm-hmm. all of this backed by the, the Feds. And what that really means is de facto, here's what it means. The banks would not loan this money if it were not for the Fed backing them. That's the bottom line. Yes. Just by their pure existence, because otherwise the government wouldn't do it. The, the banks would be doing it on their own. And so that's that's the whole point of it. So whenever you look at, at a uh, U.S. government-backed mortgage, loan, farm loan, business loan, 
it's already a red flag. It's already an indication that the market would not be doing this by itself were it not for the feds. And that creates the entire problem. And it's, it's kind of like what Ronald Reagan said, right? Something about, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. Well, every, everything that the Fed will do, by its nature, they are going to subsidize what nobody else would ever do without them. Right. I, and and if you want more of something, subsidize it. If you want less of it, tax it. In this country, we subsidize soy and corn. So we have a, we're gluttonous on soy and corn, and we're trying to find ways to cram that crap into our food, even though we shouldn't be eating it. Um, so it's, it's, it's exactly that. The mechanics of this, I think, are a little confusing to some people, Jeff, because, you know, ultimately it's in these in these situations, the, the true beneficiaries is is never the people that it's intended to help. This is intended to help, you know, people who have taken out loans to get educations. And to your point about being uh, less, you know, one or two standard deviations less on the extreme, you know, uh, uh, conspiratorial scale, which is I, I kind of hang out at three standard deviations from the from the mean. Yeah. Um, but 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 even if we just take the, the most uh, angelic approach and say somebody is getting a student loan because they're a first generation college student and they wanted to study uh, electrical engineering and make something of themselves and all that stuff. And this is designed to help them. Well, who it actually helps, my opinion, banks, number one, universities, number two, and who it actually hurts is taxpayers. Where am I wrong? Yeah, well, I think it's a, it's a fair analysis. Uh, in fact, I would admit that I've got a couple of, of my children. I have five grown children, nine still at home. Uh, two of those five have gone on and they have encouraged student debt. And the idea is the way I helped them to rationalize it is this is like an investment in a business. Right. They are maybe before they go to college, they're they're making 10, 12 dollars an hour. And then they borrow the money to invest in themselves, to acquire the skills necessary to earn at a higher rate. In fact, uh, both of my sons that have incurred this debt, they've gone on to earn 30, 40 dollars an hour. So it's a substantial return on investment if you've made the right decisions, if you've been prudent with that, if you then can leverage that. That not just the piece of paper, but the skill you've acquired. So I, I would argue, and we're going to talk about usury later, but I would argue that this is actually a good investment. But I'm afraid that most people have not taken that approach. Yeah, uh, they they've taken this as kind of a windfall, and it's easy for us to say, "Oh, I get a bunch of money today, and I don't have to pay it back for many many years." And so one thing that we know for certain regardless of the prudence of the decisions that the students and their parents are making, there are enormous beneficiaries in the banks who basically have a risk-free loan. That looks great for the balance sheet. Even if the interest rate is not very high, the banks love these loans because everybody knows they're guaranteed. Worst case scenario, they get 100% plus whatever interest was owing. That's the worst case scenario. So the banks love it. And of course, in my opinion, the biggest beneficiaries, not really the banks, because let's face it, look at the margins. They charge maybe three, five, seven percent, and they got to pay all those expenses, all those loan officers, all the overhead. Those margins are not great. Look who's got the margins, who really benefits the colleges, yes. who pay their, their woke professors enormous sums. They're completely insulated from the market, really from the government. 
And it doesn't matter whether the student is successful or not in life, the colleges still get paid. Yeah, and um, speaking of inflation, you know, we think it's bad, Jeff, if, if the government announced inflation rate is seven or 8%. Now we know that real inflation is much higher than that for most yeah. people, I certainly think it is. But even if, even if it were only seven or 8%, uh, stated uh, real inflation, uh, we would we would call that an emergency. Education costs in this country have been uh, inflating at seven percent per year for the last generation. I mean, these people. There are so many layers of of paid bureaucrats uh, at 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 these schools now. I mean, it's like it's like you know that they're it's not necessarily that they're hiring all these professors. They're hiring all these like woke to your point like diversity officers and, and all kinds of other garbage is happening at these schools, totally going unchecked. Meanwhile, everyone, and I mean everyone in, from academia especially, but in, in government, uh, politicians on both sides, uh, the press, mainstream media, the news, everyone is pushing this idea that college is for everyone. Everyone needs to go to college. If you don't have a college degree, you won't make anything of yourself. Uh, and we look down in this country on blue collar work. So we have a real cultural problem that is feeding into this. That it allows people to sort of forgive colleges for the raping and pillaging that they've been doing. And I think you're exactly right. They stand the most to gain from all of this. Uh, the banksters are just, you know, the middlemen that have no downside risk. Uh, and all the risk is being shoved onto us. And meanwhile, the lie continues to be perpetuated that college is for everyone. Yeah, I, I would agree entirely. I, I think there's a couple of points. Uh, the, the philosophical truth that we need to understand is that, that a large, powerful, wealthy central government is almost always at the, the foundation of these cultural evils, right? Because none of this would be possible if you didn't have a big, powerful, wealthy government that could incentivize the banks and enable the colleges. It would be impossible. The large, central, wealthy, powerful government allows these colleges to amass these enormous bureaucracies that otherwise would not be possible if the colleges had to compete in the real market. And, and for folks watching, if you've been in the military, you know this is true. If you've been in, in the church, you know that the larger the organization grows, the more layers of bureaucracy there have to be to manage the people at the bottom who are actually doing the work. And again, if you don't have the government backing all of this up with unlimited money, none of it would be possible. So when we, when we look at these kids that are borrowing money for college and making imprudent decisions, the normal checks and balances aren't there. Right, because the bankers don't care if you pay or not. They know they're going to get paid. The colleges don't care. They're happy to dilute the value of their education to meet the demand. What does that mean? If you and I go to a, a local restaurant and we, we bring a big party with us and they run out of wine, they don't have somebody in the back that can just turn water into wine. So what does that typical person do? They're going to dilute what they've got and serve it to the, the people that are there for the party in hopes that nobody will ever know the difference. That's the incentive that government has created by providing so much free money to, to pursue 
a limited supply of something, right? You can't make a professor overnight. It takes a long time. Even a good one, it takes a lo- uh, even longer. So the government has created all of this problem. Where's the real ultimate problem is in parenting, because if the parents of these kids were doing their job, they would stop them on the front end and say, are you are you crazy? You're going to pursue a degree in, you know, African women's basket weaving and you're going to borrow 40,000 a year to do that. How does that ever work out? And of course, we know because we're Catholics, we've thought about these issues, we've studied civilization, we have millennia of, of wise fathers to teach us. We know what those answers are. Our civilization doesn't have it. And that's how we get to where we are now. Right. And, and you know, and I don't, I don't think, just to clarify something you said, and I don't think you're saying this, but people might, might interpret it that way. I'm a big fan of a classical education. I'm a big fan of being classically trained in Greek and Latin, reading, uh, you know, the, 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 the Western canon, uh, which includes, you know, the, you know, from from Homer onward, and I think that that's important for people just in general. It's definitely important for priests. It's certainly important for lawyers. Um, you know, so I'm not hate. I'm not going to be the guy that sits here and hates on the liberal arts. But to your point, two hundred thousand dollars for a degree that's that's that today is technically classified as a liberal arts degree like sociology or anthropology or some garbage. Right. Uh, but that is really the antithesis of a classical education. It's like a double whammy where you have unlearned the Western canon and been told that it's racist and, and, and it's terrible. And also you're walking out with six figures of debt that you can't possibly repay. So I just wanted to make that personal, that clarification. I'm sure you, I'm sure you agree, but I'll give you a chance to react. No, I I agree entirely. Look, we need philosophers and we need theologians and sociologists, but the problem with this government intervention is it gives us what, what the economy doesn't really need. We need veterinarians and pilots. Now, I have a truck driver son. He does the, you know, over the road, long haul truck driving. He went to school to get, you know, all the certifications that he needed. He's getting a great return on that investment. But I want that truck driver to also have the basis of the of the liberal arts that you've just referred to. The problem we have right now is the the incentives are perverse. Everybody wants to be this this liberal arts person. They all want to study philosophy. And then the colleges dilute the philosophy that they can teach so that what they're getting isn't even any good. And my, my kids, uh, three of my five, have gone through these, this college experience. They're sitting through philosophy classes, excited about what they're going to learn. Right. It's garbage. Right. right. It's, right. Not, it's, it's not worth anything. And, and in fact, they should be paying the kids to endure the, the woke crap that the, the professors are teaching. So, you know, we, especially as, as Catholics, faithful Catholics, we can... We can find a lot of divisions maybe on some specifics about prudence and so forth, but fundamentally the things that we know to be true are really at the, you know, the core of this rotten apple. Yeah. Uh, neither the quadrivium nor the trivium are being taught in, uh, in any liberal arts, uh, degree, right. even, even very few Catholic ones. I th- Jeff, I think it's obvious to me why Biden is doing this now. He's, he's staring down a red, you know, a red wave potentially. Um, he's trying to hold the Senate. Uh, they, they, you know, they're, they're, they're putting out these fake polls now that claim that he's going to hold the house. They won't. 
Um, so the timing is 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 a is a big no-brainer in my opinion. But the but the real question about like does he even have the authority? Earlier I said that the government's involved in a lot of debt, and so they do have something to say about debt in which they're involved. But I think I, I may have I may be wrong, but I think even Pelosi may be on record saying that she doesn't believe that Biden actually has this authority. Um, I don't I mean, maybe it doesn't even stand up to courts. Maybe we don't even get to November with this thing uh, even going through or, or, or quite possibly they'll punt it out of the courts, you know, beyond November. So he'll get to look like he's doing something. I don't know. What, what are you seeing? Well, you're, you're right. I mean, after Biden was elected, uh, Pelosi shut this whole thing down and said, look, he doesn't have the authority to do this. What she's referring to is Congress is the one who can spend money. Congress is the one who who borrows the money. It's the president's job to then spend it in an in the effective way based on the law that Congress passed. So what Pelosi has been saying for years, what anybody would have said is Biden can't just or Trump, anybody can't just, you know, say, all right, we, we're going to forgive all this debt. What's changed is that the economy is is in recession and that they're looking at an election in November, just a few months away. It'll really be done by October, right? So they're looking at that, and they're looking at a disaster. And so the Democrats have said, we got to pull out all the stops. It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court will say next year. It doesn't matter what's legal or not. We've got to buy enough votes to minimize the threat of a Republican wave in the House. I agree with you, they can't stop that. They might be able to, it may only be, you know, a 20 or 30 vote victory instead of 40 or 50. But what they're really thinking about is the Senate. They need uh, Zoomers and millennials who've just gotten, effectively just gotten a check for 20 grand to show up in November and vote for Democrats to try to hold on to the Senate. That's what this is really about. They don't care that the Supreme Court next year will say, you know what, this law you're basing your decision on in 2003, was designed to help veterans who'd been financially harmed by the Afghanistan and Iraq war. That's that's what this law was designed to do, was to help those veterans, or maybe the, the children of veterans or the spouses of veterans who were displaced by military deployment. That's what this was about. They're reaching back to that to, to try and use that to justify what they're doing today, calling it an emergency. Well, we certainly have an emergency in the economy, but they won't admit that. So I don't think there's any doubt that that if if someone files a lawsuit against Biden on this, that the Supreme Court will eventually say, no, you can't do it. Mm-hmm. But they, the Democrats will have already gotten their votes in November. The damage will already be done. Remember two years ago when all that election fraud was happening, regardless of how, how widespread you think it was. The fact that the courts wouldn't even take it up until it was after, you know, it was meaningless, right? Everybody right. had already been sworn right. in. They wouldn't even take it up. Um, deeply, deeply troubling. And, and I will say this, as we're looking forward to November, whoever came up with the idea of calling this debt forgiveness yeah. was brilliant. I, I even see Catholics talking about forgiveness of debt as if it was some sort of, uh, you know, jubilee situation, Right. Uh, it, that's a, a total perversion of what's happening. It's merely nationalization. It's just transferring those debt obligations from the people who incurred them to the people who did not incur those debts. Yeah, that's a good point. It's really not cancelization. You know, and liberals excel at 
renaming things, uh, innocuous names like, you know, a fetus, for example, rather than a baby and just that playing with language. But you're right. This is a straight up communist um, takeover of, of a certain amount of debt. And even though I can see this going not only just 6-3 in the court struck down, probably 7-2, um, it's not like the justices are going to force the government to recoup those monies that have already been spent. So you're right. The damage will have been done and there's nothing we can do about it. Um, and it may, and they may be able to buy the Senate uh, in this action. Yep. So just to, in terms of actual dollars, uh, even though the, in my opinion, the dollar is such an ethereal concept, I mean, it's, it's almost a mythological creature, but $500 billion going to banks um, you know, there may be a tax component uh, with this as well, which I think is pretty interesting. You know, if if somebody takes a, if if you if you if you have a debt obligation and is forgiven, that could be a tax taxable event, especially in California and New York. But I, I I think it depends on where you live, Jeff. I don't know. You might be more up to speed on that, but some people are going to have to pay taxes on this uh, forgiven debt. Well, my understanding, not an attorney or an accountant, but my understanding is that when debt is is forgiven like this, that there's a taxable, a federal taxable consequence. So somebody uh, that just had $20,000 in debt forgiven may very well get a bill from the IRS that says they've got to pay tax on that. That would be in addition to how states do it. I'm not saying that's the case, but I've read some folks have said, that would normally be the case. Like if you if you had your house foreclosed, people don't know this. If you had your house foreclosed and there was a bunch of debt that got wiped away because of that, right? The first lender takes out the second lender and you've just benefited from all that money. Remember, you got that money in a check of sorts and you benefited from it by buying a house. And all of a sudden that's wiped out. The IRS may come after you for what they consider a benefit that you received. Uh, and so that could be a big shock for people who think they just got this yeah. great benefit from buying. But but again, that won't happen until next March or April. Oh, it's going to take them forever. It's going to take them forever. They voted. Yep. They got the 87,000 armed IRS agents that the field agents that they're trying to hire right now. Uh, and some companies I saw, um, I think it was Spotify or, or one of the company or one of the peer to peer payment processors, maybe. Uh, was saying we're not going to do any peer-to-peer transfers beyond 600 bucks un- unless yeah. we have your social security number because anything over 600 in a year, if you're selling stuff or doing services, is a taxable event. They're, everyone's planning on these 87,000 armed IRS agents coming online, and this may be one of the first things that they go after. I mean, sure. irony of ironies. <laughs> yeah, I, I, absolutely. There's there's no doubt about it. You know, they're going to be they, – look, if they go after a billionaire – they go after a guy who's got 100 million in assets. He's got a team of attorneys fighting for him, and they can fight the IRS indefinitely. But but somebody who makes 30, 50 grand a year and just had 20 grand in debt forgiven, that person can't afford to hire an attorney. You, you know, of all people, how expensive litigation is. So it's natural if you kind of look at this in perspective of history, understanding that that Marxist revolutionary thought. It's natural that the government will increasingly look down the economic chain to the people who can't afford to fight and for whom going to to prison would destroy their families. It's natural that they're going to look at those people and squeeze them for that money. And 
$600 doesn't sound like a lot until you look at oh, 100 million of those. Yeah, that's right. You know, speaking of speaking of the working class in this country getting squeezed by this, if you just zoom out and look at the macroeconomics of this policy coupled with just the policy of I I'm a I'm a uni party person. I think they're both bad. I think you're a little bit less so, but that's okay. Uh, we can at least agree on the idea that like not only are the 87,000 armed IRS agents going to put the squeeze on people who can't defend themselves, which is the working class, but also the inflationary effects of printing more money, of nationalizing more debt, of, of the federal government going in even further into arrears, necessitating interest payments, necessitating more inflation. So you've got you've got a lot of inflationary and tax taxation type stuff pressure that's building and when that happens it doesn't hurt musk isn't hurting i mean musk is either going to buy twitter or not either way he's got 30 billion in cash in his in his bank account right now that he just you know liquidated his tesla position he doesn't care i care you care you have kids in college i have kids who are going to start college soon um this is the kind of stuff that really is going to hurt guys like us yeah, I mean, the, we're talking about at least $500 billion, and which people hear trillions of dollars, and maybe they're thinking, well, that's not that big of a number. Or maybe they're thinking, well, it's time for me to get mine, which is a big part of this problem, right? Republicans yeah. take over government. They never cut government spending. They just shift the priorities and empower the people that they want versus what the, the Democrats do when they're in charge. So what we're talking about is just enormous sums being rolled over and, the, and it, it gets bigger and bigger. The problem gets larger, more dangerous, which means that when we start to suffer the consequences, it will be more catastrophic than it otherwise would have been. And, and so, yes, we're talking about inevitable inflationary effect, which people are already seeing. Every, every week, it seems, my wife goes to the grocery store and there's something else that has doubled in price or is no longer available at all. And the, the taxation is inevitable because remember, we've got two decades of debt that we have accumulated as a country that was basically at 1% or 0%. Yeah. As those debts start to come due in the form of treasury bills and bonds, they're going to be, they're going to have to be refinanced, not at lower rates, but at dramatically higher rates. And if you think, well, we're only at 4% now. Well, if you were at 1% before and now you're at 4, you've quadrupled the interest that will be payable, which means taxes will have to go up to pay this. And frankly, I would say this is all part of the plan because they can't possibly pay for all this stuff without inflating it. But it's going to require uh, increases in taxes just to pay those, those interest rates. This is unfortunately what uh, people have been voting for for decades, left yeah. or right. Yes, and I agree with you that inflation is a, is a tool used by the government to uh, to abstract their overall debt load away. Uh, in other words, pay back a debt with a cheaper dollar. Uh, and it's it's and and there's I don't I don't know that there's a way systemically to stop it at not, this point. Not at not at this point, really. But as you pointed out, it's. You know, the, the, the rich will will be fine because they have the tools and the knowledge and the, the professional advisors to help them manage through that. Right. They'll be able to invest in ways that will benefit from inflationary environments. 
yeah. the person who's living paycheck to paycheck, the regular person who, let's say you went to college or you studied a trade, you're making a good income, but you're, you're paying for everything in your life. And now all of a sudden the price is just going up out of control. It's always the middle and the, the lower class that get harmed by this 100% of the time. And that's why, uh, frankly, Mike, it, it troubles me when I see Catholics on social media applauding this, acting like this is a great deal. This is a horrible, terrible thing. Well, yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about that because, like, on the one hand, if this were a true jubilee, um, I think we could think about it a little differently. If I were in charge, if I were if I were emperor for a day, and I were to start doing a jubilee, I would not start with student debt. I would start probably with small business loans, and I would and I would do what I could to literally cancel them, not nationalize them, but cancel them. Because these are the productive people in society who are building businesses, creating revenue, creating jobs, and, and paying their taxes, and creating goods and services that people want. So I definitely would want to incentivize that if I, if, if I were king for a day. I think in, in, in fairness to the people that I've seen anyway on social, although I've been off more or less off for the last two weeks because I like, have real things going on in life. But um, So maybe, maybe you've seen something differently. But I, I think maybe they just are not truly aware that this is really just a communist takeover of debt, not a true cancelization. Um, and, and I don't know. It, it, let, me, let me ask it to you this way. Would you be in favor of a jubilee? Well, I, and here, here's why. You can forgive your own debts, right? So if, if you have lent me money, and then you wake up one day and you say, you know what, I, Jeff's a great guy or he's struggling or I heard he's got another kid coming or something. You can forgive that debt. That's meritorious. It's a great act of charity. Presumably, you would expect that good things will come from it in this life and the next, right, for my family who maybe wouldn't be burdened by the debt. That's debt forgiveness. That's what the Jubilee is in, in its idea, according to our tradition. But to forgive somebody else's debt, is not an act of charity, but a theft, right? You're, you're taking what is due to somebody else. I mean, imagine if you and I have saved our entire lives and we have sacrificed to save, and then we see somebody's got a great business idea or maybe he wants to buy a farm. Maybe he's part of the Catholic land movement. He wants to go buy a thousand acres and have a bunch of families move onto that land. We loan or invest the money into that to make that happen. In justice, according to St. Thomas, we, we should receive a return for that. Imagine if somebody else comes along, the emperor for the day, and just says, nah, they don't have to pay you back. It's not just that you and I and our families will be harmed, but would anybody ever again invest or loan money to a worthy endeavor? Of course not. All of that economic activity would cease immediately. And do you know what that means? Our entire economy in every respect, is built on the notion that there's money that's lent and, and repaid. And when that stops, everything stops. The food well, on the shelves, you name it. And, and I, don't, I don't disagree that we live in a debt-based economy and that everyone is the beneficiary of that. Um, by the same token, I think that we can at least agree on the principle that God did not ordain that, human, that a human society would function whereby men would labor under the yoke of debt for their entire lives. Scripture describes debt as a form of slavery. Uh, and, and I just, I can't, I can't wrap my mind around the idea that, 
that in these United States and in most of the developed world, when you are born by the mere fact of being born, you are born into debt uh, insofar as the government has already pre-spent your tax dollars and you, you have to pay the government back over, the, over your lifetime. So I think, I think the last figure I saw, Jeff, was every child born in the United States is born 200 plus thousand dollars in debt to the government. I think and that's, then you spend yeah. your entire life laboring under a, a mortgage uh, and, a, and, a, and a car payment and credit cards and student loans. You know, I don't think that man that man should live his entire life in debt. I agree with you that the entire status quo comes undone if if you start to do these jubilees. I don't know how to bridge the gap from where we are now, which is which is obviously bad to, you know, uh, a, a more ideal way of doing things. And I know you and I might see uh, the, you know, the high middle ages a little bit differently in terms of quality of life and what it was really like. And maybe that's just, you know, the, the, the whatever source material that you've read versus what I've read and stuff. But I, I, I tend to think that if given a choice, a real choice, the moral choice, right? I think the moral choice would be to live a, a, a more simple life, not under the yoke of debt, rather than living a more modern technological life, um, um, uh, you know, enslaved to debt. But, but then again, I, it's, it's, all, it's all idealism at this point because none of us are getting out of debt anytime soon. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a debtor. I'm not a lender. But if you travel around the world, what you find is that when people have access to capital, their living standards go up. And mm-hmm. right? so if you go to Mexico, go out outside of Mexico City, for example, and, and I'm sharing this because it's, it's a real example, but also something that people could experience for themselves. If you get outside of Mexico City, you go into what I would call real Mexico, out into the, the, the towns and so forth. You have people that are living in, in terrible poverty. It's not because they're they're dumb. It's not because they're lazy, but because... They don't have access to any capital sources to to build the, the next better widget or gadget or to to achieve their their goals. It's, it's an unfortunate state of our reality today that that those who have access to debt can do those things. And and the people who don't have access to that are stuck in, let's call it a medieval kind of lifestyle. So I certainly don't have the answer of how do we get from here to there? I don't have any idea. I just believe that it would be if we just started canceling debt, what what would happen? Well, I wouldn't have any debt anymore. But would I have electricity? Would I be able to go to Walmart or or Kroger and buy groceries? I don't think so. I don't I don't think I'd be able to buy gas. And so I would suddenly be in this situation with nine children still at home that if I went to the hospital, would I have an American or Western European kind of experience in the hospital? Or would I have one like I might in, in Guatemala, where the only people who get treatment are the people who have cash? Mm-hmm. A lot of it. And I, I'm afraid that if we just started canceling debt, that would happen. Now, I don't think that's practical. They're just going to inflate it away a little bit at a time, 5 10% a year. And then we're going to have this generation of painful economic experience. That's my guess uh, about what would happen. Doesn't I mean, not to push back again, but doesn't it doesn't the bill have to come due at some point? I mean, this party has to end. The bubble has to pop. And I think that I mean, most people, I think, agree. 
were overdue for some extreme pain and possibly something that makes 2008, 2009 look like child's play compared to what really uh, ought to come due. How much longer can they possibly defer, defer, defer? I have no idea, but yeah, it's, it's, it's like the addict who delays treatment for the condition. The inevitable correction is just going to be worse than it otherwise would have been, right? If you if you just start backing off in little you know bits and pieces and you, you wean off, I guess that's what doctors do in treatment centers. They just they wean them off the drug and and over time, okay, now I'm no longer addicted. But but what we're headed for has got to be a, just an extraordinary crash, and it's going to be terribly painful. And it'll be it'll be the poor, of course, who suffer the most because they have no cushion. It'll be the rich that that will weather that because they've got the the education and the advisors and the and the resources. So it, it's it's really a, a terrible situation. I feel like we're watching that slow motion crash, and we we lack the wise leaders necessary to to shepherd us through this. But you know what? Part of this problem, Mike, is is we've bought McMansions that we don't need. We've bought hundred thousand dollar cars that we don't need. And by we, of course, I'm talking collectively. The debt is enabling all sorts of bad decisions. And we could just call it you know, materialism or consumerism to make it easy. The debt has enabled all those. Whereas if we, as a culture, we're trying to discipline our passions, it, like I know you are and I am every day, we're looking, how can I, how can I detach myself from things of the world? How can I war against my, my bodily and, and spiritual passions? But as a culture, we're not doing that. We're just full on gluttony, which means the problem gets bigger and bigger and bigger and the, the correction will be worse. Yeah. Even the rate of growth of government and the rate of spending of government under Reagan was out of control. The only yeah. you know, he gets credit for slowing the rate of growth of government, which has been nonstop growth uh, for for two or three generations. And even just just slowing down the rate of growth created so much opportunity for people and it allowed so many people to be lifted out of poverty. Um, but if you, in those years, uh, and I wasn't making these arguments in those years because I was born in those years, but I suspect that if I were around and I were making arguments like, hey, this is out of control, we're writing checks that we can't cash. This the roosters are going to come home to roost, right? I think I would have been written off back then as an extremist. Now, if you make that argument, people are like, "Oh yeah, well we know it's all coming to an end. Let's just kind of do our best now and get what we can get," right? I mean, I think that's kind of where people are at. Yeah, the only person I know that was saying those things back then was Ron Paul, and people thought he was a crank and he was a, you know, this this radical libertarian and so forth. Uh, everything he was saying back then was true. And, and of course, he's still around. He's still saying, I told you so, you know, but yeah, it, it's, you know, Reagan was nothing compared to what happened under W, you know, and, and then frankly, let's put the, the blame where it lies. You know, Trump spent as, as wildly as any Democrat could ever hope to do. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah, what they've, what they've done with, Let's face it, with the, the votes of Americans, regardless of what you think about it, uh, electoral fraud, one election after another, people are voting for, for more spending. And uh, it's going to be catastrophic. And, you know, I, what am I doing? I, I'd love to hear what you're doing. What I'm doing is, you know, we've got pigs and chickens and, and rabbits, and we're trying to, to grow things. We're not 
very good at, at growing things in the, in the dirt, but we're trying to build plans that will survive difficult times. Not because we know exactly what's coming, but because I feel like we have to do something. We, we have to be able to, to look at ourselves six months from now, a year, three years from now and say, we did the best we could with what we knew and what we had. And, and, and thank God we've got YouTube where you can learn almost anything. And we've got social media, which allows us to connect with people who've actually done all this stuff before uh, and developing skills. I think that's the critical parts. What I tell all the, the college kids, what I tell people on social media who complain about their debts, the point in life is to serve others. How do we do that? We, we learn skills to, to serve other people, to solve their problems. I'm, I'm not talking about apart from serving God, of course, but I'm talking about the way we make our way through life is looking around us at the people that we know and love, our neighbors, our friends, looking at the problems they have, finding ways to solve those problems, and then you'll never be without a job. You might get paid in chicken eggs instead of dollars, but so be it. Yeah. And what you're describing is the common good, which many people um, misconstrue as the collective good, which is a communist idea. But the common good is the is the is the body of Christ. You know, if if my brother uh, next door is suffering, then I am suffering, you know, and and a lot of times it's tempting in America to have this kind of like individualist uh, attitude rather than a community mindset. I just want to zero in on one thing you said. And then after the break, we'll talk about usury. You said that there's a dearth of leadership, and I agree with that. Um, one of the things that I think we need to be doing is planning for a post-financial reckoning um, awakening, because that it, out of that chaos and during that chaos will be a, a golden opportunity for for well-read, well-prepared, um, uh, you know, morally compassed Catholics to rise up. It, you, we may see secession. We may see balkanization. We may see something violent. I mean, look at what's going to happen in Germany right now. Uh, they're having an eightfold cost increase just to heat their homes this coming winter. Some people are just going to be cold. I mean, we're not going to see anything like that this winter. We're pretty lucky here. We're not dependent on Russian national gas. But the the global reckoning is coming, and there's nothing. Nobody could stop it now at this point. So I think to your point. If we have, if we, if we could cultivate some real leaders, and they could be regional leaders, we could. We're talking about like regional principalities that could emerge here. Uh, do, am I? Do I sound crazy that that maybe like well-heeled, well, uh, well-catechized Catholics could actually see some gains in in the coming chaos? Well, of course, in any uh, situation of crisis, there are people who will be able to to take advantage of that. And I, I don't mean to take advantage in a, in a malicious way, but, but yes, there are people out there that God has put in this time and place. And, th- and that includes you and I, and every person listening, God chose out of all humanity, out of all time that would ever exist. He chose to put us here. So I, I think we have to look at that in kind of a, a small V vocation way. Uh, let's not despair. Let's not worry. Let's not panic. God put us here. Let's live up to that expectation. Let's develop those talents and do the best we can. I have no doubt whatsoever that there are uh, well-established, uh, brilliant, affluent Catholic men in particular who have to be leaders in our cultures and families, but also the women who uh, have nourished them and supported them and care for them and make that possible and who are the leaders in those homes that are there and will be ready uh, 
uh, for these times of crisis. But that would be for nothing if you and I, foot soldiers and the regular folks out there, are not also thinking of it. And and we can't be pie in the sky kind of idealism. And I see a lot of this utopian kind of thinking uh, on social media, right, that I'm going to move out and get 10 acres and I'm going to be self-sufficient and my family will be insulated from the, the world. That That's not the way it works. That's not what our Lord told us to be, right? We're, we're supposed to be out there with the people, sharing the gospel with them, number one. That's more important than the materialist aspect. But certainly if you can feed people, if you can employ people, if you can uh, give them shelter from the elements and, and safety from the, the people who hate us, if you've thought about and prepared for that, you're going to be in a fantastic situation uh, to help people. And yes, as we see in our liturgical lives, uh, we may be a painful and horrific regression, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the early Catholics came out of the catacombs into civilization and built civilization. We, our generation, may very well see a return from where we are to the catacombs. And it makes me think about Our Lady appearing to that uh, that holy nun in, in Japan who said that the time would come when the living would envy the dead. Hmm. All right, quick break, 30 seconds on the back end of this. We're going to actually tackle for the first time on YouTube this whole usury thing. What is usury? And uh, shouldn't we be okay with getting rid of a little bit of usury? All right, Jeff, I know we're not going to see eye to eye on this one, but I just want to put this out there. I think that lending at interest is usurious, generally speaking. What say you? I would say that lending at interest is generally not usurious. Uh, There's no doubt that in previous centuries, the church made those kinds of blanket statements but I, I think there's also no doubt that, that since the Fifth Lateran Council uh, and in recent centuries, especially with the development of these fiat currencies that we all now use, I think the church has pretty clearly updated her teaching and would say something along the lines of excessive interest is usurious. I, I, I think that's where she would, would come down on the question. See, and and this is, I think, intentionally obscured and confusing. I think that the popes since the 1800s have really declined to sharpen their pencils on this. I know that in, you know, in 1515, there was a there was a tectonic shift in the definition of usury and the punishments for usury. Let's just start from the premise that prior to that time, we both agree that the usurer, whoever that is, whatever that is, was deprived of ecclesiastical burial uh, and, and I mean, was buried alongside the suicides with no rights and no, no requiem mass. And you were forbidden to pray for that person because he was presumed to be in hell. Right. Um, we, don't, we don't take that position anymore, primarily because I think you can't even define who the usurer is, right? And, and so it's so squishy now 
that yeah. you and I could sit here and debate this for the next two hours. We won't. I, I'd love to, but I, we probably won't do that. Um, and and we won't, we're not going to reach a consensus exactly on what, who, who is a user and who's not. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I, I don't think there's any doubt that the church has always condemned usury. The, the question is, what is usury now? And, and I don't know that it's the church just kind of uh, failing to define it. I, I think it's a, a, a real situation. The church herself does not know what that is. She lacks sufficient competence in, in economics to, to look at the, all the different circumstances, all the different situations around the world and, and say, oh, that situation is usury. It's a little bit like the just wage, right? You, you were kind enough to host a debate uh, some time ago that I was a part of talking about uh, distributism. And distributists are always saying, well, we need to have a just wage. Well, what is that? I don't know that anybody knows. I mean, we could just throw a number at it, right? But in, in, in terms of that particular place and time, I don't think the church knows. And I think that's why she's relatively silent on the question of specifically defining usury as a certain interest rate or something. But it is clear to me, and, and I've talked to dozens of moral theologians and, and canon lawyers, that they do not believe that mere interest is a uh, is a usurious act they would say generally speaking that that a lender has the right to recoup their expenses that were involved in in lending money they have the right to offset their risk that's involved in lending money that risk is spread among all of the borrowers because not all of them will fail some of them will and then finally the that the lender has the right to uh, recouping their lost opportunity costs that is to say uh, what they would have been able to benefit from had they not lent the money. And this get, this finds its foundation even in St. Thomas, who, you know, talked about, I think he talked about lending a, a robe or a, a shirt or something, you know, and if it's returned and it's been all beat up and it's got holes in it and stuff, you did not get back what you had lent. That's mm -hmm. my understanding of, of how interest would be according to justice. Now, uh, this discussion really involves one of the emerging trends in, in ecclesiastics anyway today, is, which is the set of contests. Uh, because if you you didn't, it, you didn't tell me we were going there. No, no, no. No, it's fine. It's fine. And we don't have to go there. Uh, other than just to say that they can make hay of statements like, the church isn't really defining it. The church doesn't know what it is. She lacks the competence. She's engaging in it, frankly. I mean, dioceses make loans to parishes uh, all the time. Uh, yeah. Dioceses keep their money in banks, and uh, therefore those monies are lent out by banks. So yeah. everyone is awash in usury. Uh, if you, even if you take the strictest definition of usury, which I tend towards that, and I have my reasons for it, and I won't, I won't, I won't try to bludgeon you with those. But, but we we open ourselves up to that, except for the fact, Jeff, and I have to say this: the church was doing this before Paul the Sixth. Okay, so you know, if you want to say, well, this is proof that that these are all fake popes because they're all usurers. Well, they were usurers back then too, and we haven't had a clear definition of usury. Maybe, maybe Benedict the Fourteenth 
put something out uh, about usury, but even he couldn't put the genie back in the bottle that had been released for hundreds of years up to that point. So I think I think it's a pretty interesting issue, and it's definitely one that that touches that issue. I uh, just want to get your quick reaction on on that dimension of it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think there's any doubt that we are living in a time of crisis in the church, and that that's not just a liturgical crisis, right? If you've if you've come to a traditional Latin mass, you've seen the beauty of that. You've probably asked, why are we suffering through this deprivation of the last 50 years? But it, it's more than liturgy. It is Catholic catechesis. It's formation. It's what we believe, what we believe about God and, and man and how we're supposed to achieve the beatific vision. And certainly the church's teaching on economics is, is a part of that, right? It's not like it's somehow been you know, protected from, from the chaos of the last uh, 60 years. But to your point, you're right. Remember that the old canon law itself ordered dioceses and parishes to invest their money in interest-bearing accounts. And and for decades before that, even, the, the curia was telling people, yes, it's okay to, to, you know, to lend diocesan funds for building projects and so forth, and you should receive interest on this. So there's a, there's a lot of conf- confusion. I I believe that what we're seeing is the church recognizing, perhaps in an imperfective, uh, imperfect way, that the nature of money has changed since uh, the Middle, e- mm-hmm. Middle Ages. The nature of money has changed since St. Thomas. And what do we mean by that? that? That money today has velocity, right? That you and I, when we possess a dollar, that dollar could also be employed in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, in some way that that money, say a gold coin in the 13th century, could not have been similarly utilized. And so that, that money has velocity or it has a use that was not either understood or possible back then. That would be my argument that, that the usury is still possible, but the church is struggling to figure out what does that look like in a time when interest is the standard? And I would I would pose this question to you as a guy who would take the, the usury more in a more strict sense. Mm-hmm. If we're in a situation of 10% annual inflation, is it usury to charge 10% a year just to protect the money, just so that the lender receives back not more, but just an equal amount? given his lost use in an inflationary environment. Right. And I think and I think that's a good question. I think Dr. E. Michael Jones would agree with you that, you know, at least charging the rate of inflation, there's nothing wrong with that. As I think about it though, Jeff, and you know, uh and, and this might be a good uh a good kind of back and forth thing for a couple um minutes. If inflation is a blanket it's like the sky that covers everything that we're all under and it's going to eat away inflation is a man-made evil and it's going to eat away my assets either way um and then i lend to someone who needs the money let's say i let's say i make a private loan to you i would have experienced inflation on those dollars in all likelihood regardless of what i had done but now what i'm asking you to do is cover my inflationary costs and you're going to get inflated as well. So it's almost like I'm shifting the inflate inflationary burden onto you and you pay the, the, the evil man-made inflation tax twice. But I, as the debtor, as the, as the lender 
am going to be insulated from it because I'm requiring you to insulate me from it. And uh, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a socialist by any stretch of the imagination. And I, and I really have no sympathy for people who don't work. Um, but I do have an incredible amount of empathy for people who have to borrow money uh, to, to live their lives. And I almost see it as this is what we're, and, and, and this is an, this is an example where we're talking about two private people. If I'm a bank and I am, and I would be subject to the laws of inflation normally for me to require all of all the people that I lend to, to, to um, protect me from inflation. I think that's predatory in my opinion. That's, that's a lot of questions right there. What I would say about the, the personal loan that you were talking about is that the church has distinguished in the past the nature of the loan. What, what is it for? Right? If, you're, if you're lending me money so that I can feed my children or so that I can buy clothes, uh, so that I can survive, yeah, the, the teaching on usury there is really strict. I, and I, I think uh, certainly I, the, the school kind of that I would come from, would say, gosh, that that doesn't seem right to charge any interest there, right? You should really be lending without care that it would ever be pay, paid back. It, it might be some sort of prudence that would be paid back, right? Like, I don't want to encourage uh, bad behavior. You know, if, if somebody's got a gambling problem or something, if you're just giving free money constantly, what happens? You just enable it. So I'm going to call it a loan, hoping that that will curb the behavior. But let's look at where most of the debt is today. I would I would push back to your category and say, if people are borrowing enormous sums of money to buy a house, is that really a personal loan or are they investing in real estate? They, they may not be thinking to themselves, this is a real estate transaction, but you and I know they are in fact leveraging other people's money to control an asset for a long period of time. Yeah, And it seems to me that injustice, that's not really a personal transaction. That's an investment deal. The same with even buying a vehicle. And we think of a vehicle as a depreciating asset, but if I'm buying that vehicle in order to enable me to, to do business, whether it's W-2, earn an income, or it's to run a business, is that really a personal transaction or does that investment in an asset enable me to earn an income that without that asset, I would not be able to, to earn? And a lot of people still drive to work, right? Not all of us can you know, work from home. So uh, I would say that when we talk about real estate and cars and student loans, uh, these kinds of things, to me, they do not seem to meet the, the essence of the law, the old law that was designed to prevent usury. And remember, when our Lord gave that law to Moses and the Jews, he did uh, prohibit lending from one Jew to another, but he did not prohibit lending to Gentiles. That suggests to me that the lending at interest itself is not an inherently evil act. Um, okay, two things there. I and this is this is a really fun discussion. I'm having so much fun here. I'm trying to find. I, a certain I hope the uh, the viewers are having as much fun. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Viewership has gone down, and, and we don't care. Um, first of all, I think just on the on the on the Jewish lending thing, uh, lending to Gentiles was viewed as a weapon system money was a weapon system and usury was an act of war and it was a way to crush and destroy the enemies of god the non-believers the non-jews um and i think that usury should still be understood whatever usury is 
it should still be understood in that context as it is a weapon system and it is a it is a weapon of war. I think that uh, how can I answer your 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 main point though? You know, two generations ago, Jeff, if a janitor could raise ten kids and buy a, and and own a house, and maybe I've spent too much time around the TFP traditional fa- tradition, family, and property, but the P in TFP stands for property, and I just believe that a Catholic family ought to own things. And the fact of the matter is, there's no way to own a house today. There's no way to own a house without a mortgage. I mean, um, initially, you could climb the property ladder like, thank God, we've we've been able to do. And you can trade out of a house and and then decrease your debt on the next one and then decrease your debt on the next one. And you can you can trade. But but there's no way to buy a starter house with $250,000 in cash coming out of Christendom. Right. So um, so but 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 purchasing homes without mortgages seemed to be seems to be much more possible back when we had real money ostensibly tied to the gold standard. Now I'm not so sure what we have. I don't think it is money. And so I, it, 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 it really models the conversation. It really does. And it, it gets to the point, Jeff, where I'm not so sure that I can mentally get over the barrier and say, you know what? The person who is taking out a mortgage to buy a house is really a real estate investor. Cause I really think that a family ought to own their dwelling. Um, and, and, and you, you might call it an investment. And I think on, uh, strictly speaking, definitionally, you're probably right, but I don't necessarily think that everyone thinks about it that way. I think that a father has an obligation as a provider protector to, uh, to provide a permanent, stable, safe life for his children to grow up, learn the faith, learn from mom, all that stuff. And so, um, so I don't, I don't think that you could say really it's a hundred percent an investment, and therefore, you know, it's not usurious because you know they're they're they're, they're they stand to gain. The other thing, uh, and I'll and I'll turn it back over to you. I'll let you have the last word on this too, um, because I don't think I'm going to convince anybody. And and I don't, and, you know, people are just where they are on this issue. But even though you and I are talking about it, the last thing I'll say about it is that the the appreciation of of a residential real estate, I think also is a, is a kind of a weird thing in our history too. I don't think that we've outside of the last three generations, let's say, I really don't think that residential real estate has been such a lucrative investment opportunity for families in the course of human history, really. And so the, the, the fact that the generally the asset class tends to appreciate despite the bumps in the road, like 09, um, is really kind of a novelty. And so that also might be a weakness in your argument as I see it, but, but, uh, but correct me where you think I'm wrong. Well, well again, you've, you've dumped a lot on me. Uh, I, I think <laughs> that uh, here's where I would start with the, the topic of usury. If we don't talk about the Federal Reserve in a conversation about usury, then we, we've missed the boat, right? The Federal Reserve is, is creating something from nothing and then lending that out. And, and yes, I, I know, and I'm sure you, you know, technically speaking, the Federal Reserve doesn't make money, right? All the interest that the Treasury pays back to the Federal Reserve theoretically just goes back in the system. So theoretically, they're not making money, but that is the basis of the foundation of our whole system, not just the Federal Reserve, but in all the other central banks of the world, they just create something out of nothing, lend it out, and then the banks yeah. in turn lend it out to, to people and so forth and so on. We, 
we're involved at minimum in a remote way with that evil. Do we have any way to get around it? Not really. Uh, so I, I think that we, in some respect, we're, we're kind of quibbling over, uh, you know, the, the details here when we're awash in this system that traps us in, in usury. I mean, if that's not usury, what the Federal Reserve does, then there, there is no such thing. And, and if that's usury, then what what you and I and most other regular people are involved in, it, it, it's just it, it's it seems to me proportionally to be almost nothing. Uh, I, I would take issue with the, the claim about real estate not appreciated over time. Uh, take a look at what we paid for the Louisiana Purchase or Alaska. And I, and I know you're going you're gonna to poke fun at that. And, that, and, that's, and there's, there's, some, there's some room there to criticize that. But I, I do think that when you have a population that's growing, and our population has been growing for the last 250 years, and it likely will continue to, even as there's a population crisis in China and in Japan and in Europe, people want to come here. And so you have more people chasing a fixed amount of land. I, I think the, the price is likely to continue to go up. W what does that mean? Well, whether I'm right or wrong, I would say that it, it does lend an investment aspect. People buy houses today with the belief, right or wrong, that the price will go up. I would grant you that a, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, they probably didn't do that. They bought that land. They built a cabin for their family, for their kids without regard to, to making money. But today, it certainly is baked into that, in my opinion. Uh, finally, you mentioned owning uh, kind of in the context of, you know, a, a father should own a home and provide for his family. My friend, we never really own our homes because you buy a home. Fair. fair. And I got to pay rent to the, the county every mm -hmm. year. And I know people, and you've probably seen the meme, I know, you know, soldiers who came back from Vietnam and they took that you know, that the payments they got, they bought the house. And now the taxes that they have to pay to own that house every year are greater than what their retirement was from the army. Do they really own it or are we just fooling ourselves? Uh, I, I'm sorry to end my, my opportunity here to, to talk on such a sour note, but I, I think it's better that we, we face the reality that our situation is so bad that even if you have the chance to buy a property, build your home, and you own it outright, you don't really own it. Yeah, I, I'll definitely. We've we've ended on common ground there. We're all renters to the government, and that's communism, soft communism, at least. I want to recommend a couple books, and you can recommend some titles too. Um, you've inspired me. One of the things you said is we can't talk about usury or inflation without talking about the Federal Reserve. Got to get this book. This is a must-have. It's called The Creature from Jekyll Island. The Creature from Jekyll Island, written by uh, Edward Griffin. Uh, the second book that I'll recommend, and this is, this is to me, this is like a, a left-wing liberal economist, and I normally don't recommend those types of people, but it's called uh, Capital by Thomas Piketty. And the reason why I recommend this is because I do believe that the rich are getting richer because there's a simple mathematical formula that proves it. The rate of growth of uh, smart capital is greater than the rate of growth of dumb capital. And as a result, over time, smart capital will grow faster than dumb capital will grow. That's just it. And I'm dumb capital and you're dumb capital. And well, actually, you're probably smart capital. But uh, the deals that the rich have access to, and I used to be in the deal business for rich people as well, 
are deals that you and I don't have access to. And so their money will inevitably, invariably grow faster than ours. Therefore, there will be a concentration at the top. That's just a mathematical certainty. Finally, um, Hoffman, usury in Christendom, the mortal sin that was and is now not. This is the book that actually has really convinced me that usury, uh, my bookshelf is acting up, uh, that has uh, convinced me that usury really is a very serious thing whatever it is, Hoffman goes out of his way to defend uh, and, and define usury in the strictest sense. And uh, right now that's influencing my thought. And I think he's onto something, but if you have titles you want to recommend as well, Jeff and, or any other plugs and how we can, uh, how we can find you. And I put a link to your YouTube channel in the show notes. I, I find your introductions to tradition with Jim to be really helpful. Uh, but why don't you land the plane on anything else you want to, you want to plug here? Yeah, you, you certainly took at least one of the titles away from me. I think that uh, Jekyll Island book is, is a great starter for most people. Economics in One Minute is another one. Uh, there are two books that, that I would recommend for uh, faithful Catholics who are trying to navigate their way through these questions, who are willing to kind of explore uh, alternative approaches to, to things. Tom Woods is a Catholic scholar. He wrote a book called Beyond Distributism that I think is a, is a good review of kind of Catholic social teaching principles, maybe from a perspective you've not heard before. And then finally, also, uh, Tom Woods wrote a book, Church and the Market, and he talks about the development of the, the Western economy uh, as a result of the foundation that the church built. And I would encourage people to, to review those. And I know that you will read them and get back to us with lots of constructive criticism. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> Jeff, it was a pleasure. This was your idea, your brainchild. I'm glad that you uh, wanted to do this show. It's always a pleasure talking to you. God bless you and come back soon. Be safe.